Who are we? Who is one of us? Who are we part of? Whose humanity do we recognise as akin to ours? Following the massacre in Christchurch and then the Easter bombings in Sri Lanka, we again face questions of them and us as national and global tensions play out in new configurations of violence and terror. In this symposium, community members, academics and artists considered the fraught term, one of us, exploring questions of the normalization of racism, everyday Islamophobia, and the connections between various forms of othering, us and them, in Australia and elsewhere. It's a conflict and war and deprivation and poverty. The one thing that has struck me over and over again in my life is that from the worst of humanity always comes the best of humanity, and I think that Simandrew really highlighted that beautifully when she finished with that story of people rushing to blood banks as the bombs were going off. Out of the worst of humanity comes always the best of humanity, and that's what I hang on to every day. And that is the response and the hope and the candle of hope that burns bright for me, and I hope will burn bright for you when we attempted to despair and to focus on our grief and our mourning. Leaving space for grace is what we humans do best in times of crisis and in times of fear. And that's what we're doing this evening. We're trying to harness and embrace the best of humanity. We are leaving space for grace. In times of great tragedy, we write, we write poems. We write and we sing songs, we create beautiful art, we lay flowers, we ask ourselves important questions. We dare to dream of a more peaceful, loving, kind world. And we mobilise, we act, we decide that we will do what we can and embrace our capacity to create ripples of peace and love and inclusion. And that is what I hope this symposium will represent to all of us this evening. So as the chair of the first panel, it is my great pleasure to invite down our four panellists to come and join us at the table. And as they come down, I would uh, like to introduce them. Our first panellist is Sabra Rind. Sabra is a Muslim woman who grew up in Perth with Aboriginal and Balaki Afghan background. She has completed postgraduate studies in human rights and is currently working at the Aboriginal Legal Service of WA as a community legal education and engagement officer. Kim Scott is our second panellist. Kim is a multi-award winning novelist whose most re recent novel is entitled Taboo. Proud to be one amongst those who call themselves Noongar. Kim is also the chair, please excuse my pronunciation, Kim, of the Wurlaman Noongar Language and Stories, which is responsible for a number of bilingual picture books and regional performances of story and song. Kim is currently Professor of Writing in the School of Media, Creative Arts and Social Inquiry at Curtin University. Both Kim and I, because we'll be slipping and snorting our way through this evening. 
Our third panellist is Eamon Quader. Eamon is a research assistant at Curtin University with a master's degree in peace, conflict and development studies from the University of Coral First, Spain in 2011. Thank you, Eamon. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me? Oh, I'll try this. Hello. Yeah, must be this one. Here we are. It's, it's recording. That's, That's amplifying. Hi everyone. How's it going? <laughs> um, my name is Saba. Um, before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land that we meet today, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation. Pay my respect to the elders past, present and future. So when I found out about this event, I didn't know it was going to be so big, to be honest. Um, Hannah McGlade actually called me. So I'll tell you how it began, right? I was at the medical centre and I met this guy, he was a Maori guy, and I had this, I don't know, just attraction to, towards him, like a spiritual attraction. It was just after the Christchurch event. And um, I think there was only like tinted people sitting in that room because everyone was like, who are they? They're just talking to strangers and um, as I was talking to him and um, we were just reflecting about Christchurch and he asked me about my background and I said yeah I'm an, I'm an Aboriginal woman and I'm Muslim as well and um, he, he wanted to talk he wanted he wanted to talk further but we had to cut it <coughs> short because he had to leave so I gave him my card and on my card my work card it said Hannah McGlade's number on the back and I didn't realise. So this guy was trying to contact me that week but he kept calling Hannah. And it was just really funny because then a few days later, Hannah called me and um, she's like, oh, this Frankie guy keeps calling me and he, he keeps calling me Saba. And what's going on? And I was like, oh, this is what happened, Hannah. And he's like, she's like, oh, while I got you here, I actually want you to come to this event and take over my spot because I'm going to Geneva. I'm thinking, oh no, like, I'm not an academic, I'm just a community member, just sharing my thoughts and my feelings. So as you all know, I am a, a Muslim Aboriginal woman. Uh, my family bloodline comes from the Magnet area, Mount Magnet, near um, Geraldton. I am a Yamaji Badimaya woman. I am Baluchi Afghan as well, on my dad's side, and I'm Muslim. So as you can see, I. I try to stay away from the media because it's just upsetting from both ends. <sighs> so uh, when, when I heard of this phrase, one of us, I thought to myself, it's quite comforting, it's empowering, it's, um, it empathises, it, 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 it establishes empathy and it, in, and it creates a sense of comfort. So when, when this phrase was used to um, humanise the perpetrator, the Christchurch terrorist. It, 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 really, it really hurt me because I thought to myself, all those people, all those other terrorists have committed these crimes. They're just terrorists and not one of us. And that was um, quite hurtful. Um, but I think Jacinda Arden, oh, she's, she's amazing. She, there's a new phrase that says Arden up, and I think that's great. <laughs> and um, 
Yeah, Jacinda Ardern, when she said, they are us, and called him a terrorist. I don't know, I think I felt a sense of relief at some point, because whenever, growing up after September 11th, whenever the word terrorism or terrorist was used, I feel, I don't know, if, like, I think other Muslim people can relate to this. You'd feel this gut-wrenching feeling, and you're like, oh, shivers. And, you know, you automatically go into damage control, and you just want to, like, tell people, I'm not related to that. That's got nothing to do with me as an individual. And it sucks, you know? So, well, people say I'm Muslim and Aboriginal. How does that work? Well, to be honest, both cultures just complement one another. Their similarities is respect for family, elders, and it's all, it's, we're collective people. We're not individualistic people. It's all about being collective. And when I see, it's, it's just when both, it's always frustrating to see when both cultures are both continuously misrepresented in the media. And the misrepresentation and misconception of Aboriginal people has been an issue ever since the First Fleet. So the othering, that's, that's existed, you know, since 1770 when the First Fleet arrived. Um, So, yeah, we have Aboriginal elders and Muslim leaders. They're taking a step towards working on removing labels and making amends, but I think there should be more of this. And it's only when a horrible event like Christchurch um, takes place, these questions arise. And the idea of one of us really highlights the issues we have in our <coughs> ethnic minorities. Um, so when the New Zealand government reacted and how they took steps towards healing and healthy, helping. It really questioned Australia's position on minorities and how there is a lack of empathy when it comes to some groups. And I think when Jacinda used inclusive language, it, it was an eye-opener. And I think, oh, I wish our, some of our leaders were like that. Inclusive language is so important, especially when you're on that leadership platform. Um, yeah, so language, I think, makes a huge difference. It can empower or disempower individuals and groups. Um, for example, Pauline Hanson, she loves to use hate speech. And last, last year when she put that motion, it's okay to be white, it was a funny one. I just thought to myself, yeah, it's okay to be white, but it's not okay to be Pauline. <laughs> <coughs> and, and it just got me thinking, how and why did she come up with this conclusion? Her rhetoric has been obvious from the beginning towards migration, indigenous people, and other ethnic minorities. But it got me thinking, if I stand up for who I am, and it gets, it, it gets misrepresented in the Australian community, as if it's an attack on white Australia, or the Anglo-white Anglo community. When I'm speaking about my Aboriginal rights and the human rights issues, that doesn't mean I'm attacking white Australian culture. Look, we have nothing against white, white skin, but we're against the notion of imposing your whiteness and your colonialism on Australian society when we are made up of different cultures. I think Australia is an immature country. White Australia has a black history. And I think it's, it's up to every individual to decolonise their minds. And, I, and it's about time to accept that we live in a global village. Everyone we see nowadays is, is mixed, like every other second, third person. In Australia, and it's so important to to see that and realise this. That I'm just over the the typical, you know, middle-aged white Australian 
man in parliament. I'm just so over it. And anyways, I just think it's so important to celebrate diversity and um, our similarities. So thank you. I'm not so much going to talk about the uh, what it may you know, the phrase. I'm going to ref more reflect on um, aspects to do with uh, why we're gathered here today. <clears throat> it may be pertinent thinking about those wise words of Pat Dodson's, particularly the line where he talked about cowards with power and guns. It seems to me much, perhaps much of what we motivates, uh, what motivates people in these outrageous acts of violence, is cowardice, insecurity, uh, all their weaknesses that they channel into violence, destroying others to make themselves better in one way. <clears throat> the first thing, like everybody else, I feel like saying hats off to the New Zealand Prime Minister. My great compliments to the New Zealand Prime Minister. Speaking like that, it's rare. I'd, I'd forgotten how, how rare it is these days, how rare and unusual that sort of inclusiveness is. That inclusiveness and that strength to say those sort of lines. I must admit, I am tempted to try and also understand and include a sense of humanity for the killer. Um, and one of the things in my reflection here, what I want to do is think about, because someone is, how we get trapped into someone else's structures of violence and the role of anger and how to not, you get locked into someone else's shittiness, if I can put it bluntly like that, um, and someone else bullies you, you want to bring them down as part of a punishment and a reaction. <coughs> I also want to say briefly, without being too um, self-indulgent narcissistic, as a creative writer I often stray into that field, I, as a Noongar person, I'm descended from ancestral country east of Albany, and there's another person here related to the, connected to this area. I'm the um, son of a, the only surviving child to a woman born in this area at the beginning of the 20th century. <coughs> and her mother, who acted as a midwife for the town, the white and the few black people there. So this, these are the remnant surviving killing on this area of the south coast because they were <coughs> valuable as women and they were connected with white blokes. And when I say that, being that the heavily compromised circumstances this little group of people were operating in, my grandmother's brother was the um, first person born as that town became known as the town of Ravensworth. And it's awkward to think about, but living in those deeply compromised circumstances, 
he wanted to be recognised as the first person born in that town. But because, and he was, he'd do all he could to deny his Aboriginality, this particular fella. And despite all that, he still would never get named as the first person born, born in that place because he had black family. And I think that extent of othering to try and secure up one's own sort of identity is systematic through Australian history. There have been academics, far better academics than me, I, I'm a pretender to the term, who've talked about it is a peculiarity of Australian society, particularly West Australian society. We have the fragments of a mother co the mother colony, Britain, arrive here. They don't know who they are, or as particularly as a collective. And the way they are bound together is through othering Aboriginal people and not being them. And that forges a sense of identity, weak and perverse as that is. That's why those lines about cowards with power and guns resonated with me. Now when I said um, the words of the New Zealand Prime Minister in encouraging us all to arden up in some ways were so unusual, um, it seemed to me because, I'll say in a neoliberal age, but there's other ways of putting that, capitalism and colonialism perhaps, we mainly are talking out of fear so very much. We're in a neoliberal circumstances where it's about individualism and one on one. We put borders up regularly. We encourage almost a sense of vigilantes. When I wrote this down earlier today, vigilantes, I thought of the, um, the film about James Baldwin recently, I Am Not Your Negro where he made, I thought, the very pertinent point about John Wayne as a justice warrior. But you change the colour of the man and he becomes a psychopathic murderer, you know, and he's seeking justice. And that in itself is kind of instructive about the narratives we tell ourselves and the sort of othering, particularly to do with race. And a neoliberal world where it's the winner takes all and those winners can gather around themselves a sense of entitlement because they are superior without acknowledging and proving and saying their, blind, their own blindness to the structures of race, class, wealth that structure us together and divide as much as pull people together. And in some circumstances, families can be a way of othering even within communities. All that sort of stuff gives us a very poor sense, I think, of a narrative of collective sense of purpose. And I'm not the only one that has said that when you have no collective sense of purpose, and that doesn't mean everyone's the same, you can have that idea of kindredness in diversity, that people fall prey to potent ideas of us and them in their attempt to find a collective sense of purpose. I think there's a lot <coughs> of that around, along with probably strategic undermining of faith in our institutions of democratic and convivial society. Those things lead along with an increase in cynicism and indifference 
and the lack of hope that comes from those things. And it seems, if you listen as I try to, in all my perversity, to some of the words, the words of people engaged in this violent extremist action, that lack of hope, that cynicism, that indifference, that undermining of faith leads people to the sense of needing a strong man and then even more pathetically developing that sense that I will be that strong man. I will be that coward with power and guns but never articulated as honestly as that. So these are things I thought about in response to tonight's topic. I thought about also how hard it is to be immune to othering. I'm thinking about myself and in what I'm about to say I don't mean to offend anyone, I'm just trying to be brutally honest and courageous in that way. I was recently at a gathering of writers from the south, so it was a othering against the north in, in an attempt at identity. And there was a, a writer from South Af Africa there, an Afrikaans writer. And I recognised in myself, in her talking, that I was some psychological sense of moving backwards, something to do with the sound of the voice, something of the way she was, she was talking. She still lived in South Africa. She was talking about change and her difficulty with handling change. And she just wanted to run away from it all and no longer be writing. And then she said at one point, because I'm living in a society where there was a bunch a particular bunch of men enriching themselves and now we've got another bunch of men enriching themselves. And that's what made me think about if you don't, if you carry anger and as a response to othering within the same structures, you're trapped in this ever declining cycle of violence and wanting to get your own back and reduce the other fella. And if we're all doing that to one another, how we, it's just a spiralling down the drain. Uh, I think Bill Ashcroft says the same sort of thing in post-colonial situations. What's the point if the structures stay the same and you just change the people there? I think that's worthwhile hanging on to that sort of thing. And I remember uh, almost 30 years ago uh, working in an Aboriginal bridging course uh, at Curtin University. I hope I'm not going to go on too long. I hope someone will yell out to me when I've gone on too long here. Okay, I'll speed it up. <laughs> All these other things I was going to say. Let me kind of finish with this. So we've been, part of one's role there is to try and educate people into an understanding of why we are in the position we're in, the lower rungs of society with all the lousy social indicators. But I was disturbed even <coughs> back then to hear someone about my own age, one of the students, talk about, oh, I just feel like getting a machine gun and walking down Hay Street Mall sometimes and shooting people. Um, and that, that's a failure if that's all we leave people with, that anger and that reacting within the same sort of systems. I was going to talk a little bit about um, the profile of perpetrators of this sort of thing, their own apparent sense of being under siege, isolated, unloved, and how that makes them ripe to be 
converted into some big empowering cause and to be the saviour and overcome their uh, social inadequacies. I was going to talk a little bit about anger and then in fact it's not always bad because it's better than cynicism, indifference and a sense of hopelessness which renders us passive. And the problem is finding a way for anger to draw, instead of crushing the other opponent and doing the same thing back, driving us into a transformed sense of future that will mean changing lots of our structures. And I was going to talk about possible narratives to do with imagination. Martin Luther King, reasons for anger. Gandhi, reasons for anger. How did they transform themselves out of that? Even in this context, powerful political leaders. Uh, Keating's Redfern speech, uh, a speech I really value, the gutsiness and the courage to talk about, to acknowledge the sins of a society. And more than that, to talk to his audience, mainly a white Australian audience, about a failure of imagination, meaning a failure of empathy, to put ourselves into the shoes of those we've regarded as other and what can be gained by that. But that's probably my time. Thank you very much. First of all, it's um, a pleasure to be here tonight. and. Um, um, when I first got invited to uh, come and present in the, um, the symposium, um, I come from community background, and um, um, and I think it's really important and timely uh, symposium for us to continue the conversation and not let it to die out, um, because we've got people who got impacted by this um, massacre and hate. Um, race hate. Um, first of all, I would like to um, start by acknowledging the traditional owner of the land in which this symposium is held on um, and recognize the strength, resilience, and um, capacity of the Nunga people in this land. Um, I would like also to continue mourn with you all in the aftermath of the horrific, heroic massacre and mass shooting, an act of terrorism um, in which um, which was carried out in both New Zealand and Sri Lanka. The anger I feel over those who, um, over the horrible crime in which Christians were murdered in Sri Lanka is as great as the anger I have over those who were targeted in the mosque, in the mosques in um, Christchurch in New Zealand. Both the crimes represent bloodshed, killing of innocent souls, terrorizing faithful people, and inciting violence and hate. On March 15th in Christchurch, 50 human beings had their life and their futures ahead of them. Many had fled their home countries, which probably have been affected by conflict to some extent, seeking a better future for themselves and their families in New Zealand. I feel their situation is very much close to my own. 
And that's an immediate response to the phrase, one of us. 50 people were gone down in a holy place, in a holy, pla in a holy day for the Muslim community. The very same thing, Christians were targeted in Sri Lanka in a holy place, in a holy day. They were literally targeted because of the faith that they belonged to and the place that they were shopping. Deliberately targeted because they were in a mosque, they were in church. As I was preparing my remarks for this symposium, I felt really paralyzed in how to react to this, to mourn those who have left us or understand the root cause of such atrocity, such violence, such terrorism. I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I came to Perth in 2014 from Gaza, Palestine, with my wife who was offered a PhD scholarship in Perth here. I lived in Gaza until I was 23 years old. Then a master's degree in peace conflict studies brought me to Europe, where I experienced freedom for the first time in my life. I traveled across the continent. I may have heard the concept of Islamophobia elsewhere, but honestly, this concept has been materialized in Australia. In Gaza back, many aspects of life are still under threat by the Israelis' 12-year-long blockade on the Strip. About 30% of the mosques in Gaza got destroyed in 2012. About 200 mosques were damaged because of the airstrikes. We came to Australia with a hope for a safer future for me, my wife, my family. In Australia, I have felt safe in so many ways. <coughs> but I have also felt a new kind of threat. Racism and Islamophobia are a new experience to me. Islamophobia didn't come overnight. It was a result of anti-Islam and anti-Muslim rhetoric that we quite often hear in the news from political leaders. And it's really outrageous because we, we know that this is going to lead us somewhere that is not pleasant. Last week, I took my four-year-old son to the mosque for a Friday prayer. I found myself feeling very afraid. And I have to admit, I was driving there and I had that thought back in my mind that I could be one of those. The mosque has been always a place of safety for us, a place to connect with the Creator. But since Christ Church, it's no longer feeling that safe. I feel the need to keep my son close to me. I was sheltering him with my body in case of unthinkable could happen here too. Since moving to Australia five years ago, it has felt increasingly important to connect struggles from Islamophobia <coughs> to the Aboriginal Australians 
I believe that marginalized people, marginalized communities need to work together, shoulder and shoulder. We saw this manifested beautifully in the candlelight vigil in Mary Street Mall after the Christchurch massacre. Aboriginal and Maori uh, supporters stand shoulder and shoulder with Muslim leaders, with Muslim communities, along with many non-Muslim Australians. I feel that we all need to recognize each other unique struggle. However, it's very important that we support each other in this critical time to celebrate our diversity because it's our strength. And that's another aspect for me, meaning of one of us. Islamophobia is real. It's a targeted campaign to influence people, to dehumanize the other. It always struck me the process of dehumanization in which this perpetrator goes through in order for him to see the other as other. And that's the dangerous narrative of dehumanization of the other. This is another destructive and exclusionary aspect of one of us. That are those who are made to fear what we wear. What we wear. Fear the choice of food we eat. To fear the way we pray. To fear the way we practice our faith. We look at governments around the world, including New Zealand and surrounding neighbors, to bring an end to the hate speech and politics um, of fear. Thank you. Begin by acknowledging that we live on Noongar land, but also that it is a long journey for me to understand fully what that means. Um, my first responses to the Christchurch murders, uh, to the massacre in Sri Lanka, to other similar killings has always been personal. Oh, Mike's not on. Oh. There, right? Now? Okay. All right. Closer. All right. Sadness and anger at the loss of life and at the ways in which our society has allowed the hate underpinning acts of violence like these to spread and to thrive. I'm deeply sorry for the pain that parents, children, and friends of those who are killed must still be feel feeling. I'm deeply sorry for the many people around the world including here, who feel unsafe in their mosques or other places of worship, in their homes and in our streets. As a queer woman, and now as a mother of a small and very vulnerable child, I feel some of the sense of threat and vulnerability that comes tied to specific bodies that are visible as other. But also as a white person in a settler state, I can only do my imperfect best to listen and act in solidarity with Muslims, Aboriginal people, and others who are subject not only to the violence of the racist right, but also to the violence of the state. And as well as sadness, I do feel anger. I feel frustrated and frequently also hopeless at the sheer enormity of the work that's required to change our political system and at the huge array of resources that are stacked up against any kind of positive change. And I know that letting hopelessness overwhelm us only serves those in power. So I'm joining others in trying to understand and perhaps throw some sand into the machinery of hatred. The ideas that motivated the Christchurch murderer spread in many ways. 
while politicians and journalists in Australia were quick to distance themselves from the violence. The political mainstream and mass media in Australia have been sharing and supporting racism since the theft of this country began. This is not a problem on the fringes of our system. It is right at the centre of how Australia works, the very concept of Australia. But also as somebody who has spent many years researching the ways in which people are using the internet to connect, I think we need to understand the role that digital media particularly played. Today, many people's experience of the internet is shaped by large companies like YouTube, Google, Facebook, and Twitter. The interests of these companies sometimes overlap with our own. But when they're developing technologies to search online, to connect with others, to share information, to share videos, to share the hashtag for this event and others, they're not doing it to make the world a better place. They're doing it to make money. And they do it in a very specific context, where most of those who are making the key decisions, from the right, right up from the broad level strategy, right down to the design of specific pro, pro, programs and user interfaces, are white men. And they're often white men with very limited experiences of suffering violence and vulnerability. And this means that the technology that threads through our everyday lives isn't built to meet our needs. What is important to these companies is collecting users' data, keeping users' attention, and finding ways to make money from that data and that attention. And these companies need to work at great scales to be profitable, which means automating many of the processes, often using systems that are proprietary, which means they're kept hidden from users and researchers and anyone who might try to unbox them and understand what kinds of information they're prioritizing and how they're working. This has really significant, awful, direct consequences for our society. Automated recommendation systems are often suggesting content on sites like YouTube that spread racism, often in insidious ways. They take viewers from relatively mainstream speakers to more explicitly racist material. Policies against race, racist content, hate speech, and explicit harassment online have often been non-existent and they've usually only been improved after significant pressure from affected groups. As well as the failure to actually develop useful policies to deal with these issues, moderation of the content that actually gets flagged, that people say this is abusive, this is racist, this is a problem, is carried out by workers, often contractors, who are working in very poor conditions and who have to deal with huge amounts of frequently highly traumatic and highly context sensitive material very quickly. In the wake of the Christchurch attacks, Facebook has agreed, after pressure, to ban white supremacist content online. However, a quick search on the site and on Instagram, which Facebook also owns and promised would be cleaned up, will make it clear that this policy is very far from being implemented. Twitter and YouTube have made no commitment to banning white supremacist material. It's easy to point fingers at large companies. I enjoy it at times. But academia is also complicit in this. We're thinking about one of us. We also need to think about, I need to think about our own complicity in these systems and institutions. Many of the excuses the tech industry uses to avoid taking action are taken directly from the academic mainstream and are very familiar to me from my own studies at a you know, high-profile university. Both academia and most social media platforms treat it as acceptable to calmly and politely advocate for inequality, even for violence, 
and as a terrible breach of etiquette to passionately speak up against racism. Both academia and most social media platforms that we use these days are promoting a false notion of neutrality and of objectivity, of hearing out and hosting both sides, even when one side is advocating genocide. Both are built on a false assumption that Western political and philosophical ideas are inherently superior and universally applicable. The internet, like academia, like most of our society, is currently dominated and shaped by whiteness, by patriarchy, by capitalism. And online, as in academia, as in many of the, uh, the other institutions that run through our societies, there are people resisting. We need to better understand how the internet works so that we can understand not only how hate is spreading, but also what the alternatives might be. Here, like everywhere else, there are people throwing spanners in the works, repurposing the machinery of control, and trying to reclaim resources to build our own systems. That is the tiny corner that I chip away at.